This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of frostbite from the hand section on orthobullets.com. Frostbite is defined as extensive soft tissue damage associated with exposure to temperatures below the freezing point. As far as the epidemiology, males are more commonly affected than females in a 10 to 1 ratio, and frostbite typically occurs between ages 30 to 50 years old. As far as risk factors, some host factors to consider include alcohol abuse, mental illness, peripheral vascular disease, peripheral neuropathy, malnutrition, chronic illness, tobacco use, and race. Keep in mind that African descent is more likely to sustain frostbite than Caucasians who have better cold-induced vasodilation. Smoking is another risk factor as it reduces nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator, and it potentiates thrombosis by increasing fibrinogen levels and platelet activity. Some environmental factors to consider include the degree of cold temperature, where the risk of frostbite is low at greater than negative 10 degrees Celsius, and the risk of frostbite is high at less than negative 25 degrees Celsius. Other environmental factors include duration of exposure, wind chill, where tissues at negative 18 degrees Celsius freeze in one hour and tissues at negative 18 degrees Celsius freeze in 10 minutes at a wind speed of 40 miles per hour. Other environmental factors include an altitude of greater than 17,000 feet and contact with conductive materials such as water, ice, and or metal. As far as the pathophysiology of frostbite with hypothermia defined as core body temperature less than 35 degrees Celsius, circulation is shunted from the periphery to maintain core body temperature. Cardiac effects include basal metabolic rate, heart rate, and cardiac output drop. Other cardiac effects include myocardial irritability, and this manifests as an abnormal EKG. Some neurological effects include disorientation and coma, shivering, which is an anaerobic response until the core body temperature drops below 30 to 32 degrees Celsius, Keep in mind that below 30 to 32 degrees Celsius, shivering stops and muscle rigidity ensues like rigor mortis. This resembles death as there is absent respirations, dilated pupils, and muscle rigidity. The patient must be rewarmed before pronounced dead. Remember the phrase, no one is dead until warm and dead. As far as frostbite in the limbs, there are four phases. Phase one is cooling and freezing. Phase two is rewarming. Phase three is progressive tissue injury and phase four is resolution. So with phase one, which is again cooling and freezing, vasoconstriction slash vasospasm is followed by transient arteriovenous shunting, otherwise known as the hunting response, of cycles of vasodilation slash vasoconstriction every 10 minutes. Those who do not have this response are more prone to cold injury. With persistent cold, cycles cease and the temperature in tissue drops to the freezing point of tissue that is less than negative two degrees Celsius. With respect to ice crystals, extracellular ice crystals causes sludging slash stasis and intracellular dehydration because of the osmotic gradient. Keep in mind that intracellular ice crystals destroy the cell membrane. Interstitial crystallization is an exothermic reaction which maintains latent heat to keep the limb above freezing temperature. When crystallization is complete, limb temperature falls to ambient temperature. Phase two is the rewarming phase and this phase reverses the freezing process. The limb absorbs heat, and intra-slash-extracellular ice crystals melt. Intracellular swelling occurs in this phase, and endothelial cells of the capillaries become permeable. This leads to fluid extravasation that leads to blisters-slash-edema, 
and it's important to prevent refreezing as the freeze-thaw cycle has severe effects on tissues. Phase 3 is characterized by progressive tissue injury. This phase is characterized by inflammation, stasis-slash-thrombosis, and tissue necrosis. This phase will involve diminished prostaglandin E2, which is a vasodilator and is also an antiplatelet agent. In phase 3, you will also have elevated prostaglandin F2A and thromboxane B2, which are vasoconstrictors and platelet aggregating. Finally, phase 4 is the resolution phase in which you will have complete healing with no symptoms, healing with sequelae, and or early tissue necrosis slash gangrene. With respect to cell biology, frostbite leads to movement of water from an intracellular location to an extracellular location, and ultimately cellular dehydration leads to cell death. As far as the biochemistry, ice crystal formation occurs within the extracellular fluid at negative 2 to negative 15 degrees Celsius. Sensory nerve dysfunction occurs at negative 10 degrees Celsius. Some associated conditions with frostbite include frost nip, chillblane or pernio, trench foot or immersion foot, frostbite, and hypothermia. Frost nip is the mildest cold exposure injury and only affects superficial layers of skin, causing blanching and or numbness, but no dermis is damaged. Keep in mind that this is a reversible phenomenon. Chillblain or pernio occurs in the cold in non-freezing temperatures in dry conditions. This will cause burning sensation with pruritus, swelling, and erythema. Patients may have blisters and ulceration. However, this typically resolves in two weeks. Chillblain or pernio may leave chronic vasculitis, especially in young, middle-aged women. Trench foot or immersion foot is seen in military personnel and is secondary to prolonged wet non-freezing conditions in less than 10 degrees Celsius. Frostbite results in localized-slash-extensive tissue necrosis and may require amputation. Hypothermia occurs when the core body temperature is affected and can be fatal. As far as the prognosis of frostbite, the severity is increased with alcohol consumption-slash-intoxication, contact of the skin with metal or ice, and an elevated wind chill factor. As far as the presentation of frostbite, on physical exam, you may notice hypothermia, where mild is considered 32 to 35 degrees Celsius, moderate is considered 28 to 32 degrees Celsius, and severe is considered less than 28 degrees Celsius. In the setting of hypothermia, you will have tachycardia followed by bradycardia, decreased cardiac output, and arrhythmia, specifically atrial and ventricular fibrillation. You may also have decreased respiratory rate in which CO2 retention leads to hypoxia slash respiratory acidosis. On physical exam in these patients, you may also notice that the patient is disoriented and or comatose. Keep in mind that frostbite is similar to burns and the traditional classification has four degrees. First degree frostbite is characterized by a central whitish area with surrounding erythema. Second degree frostbite is characterized by clear cloudy blisters within 24 hours. Third degree frostbite is characterized by hemorrhagic blisters slash hard black eschars. And fourth degree frostbite is characterized by tissue necrosis. The newer classification is divided into superficial and deep. Superficial is basically first and second degree frostbite from the traditional classification, and this has a good prognosis. Deep frostbite is basically third and fourth degree frostbite from the traditional classification, and this has a poor prognosis. Keep in mind that blisters form 6 to 24 hours after rewarming. Superficial lesions present as clear blisters. 
Deeper lesions form hemorrhagic blisters, which may be painless. As far as imaging, an MRI or serial bone scans can be considered. T2-weighted images show enhanced signal in necrotic muscles because of disrupted cell membranes and increased extracellular fluid. As far as serial bone scans, or technetium-99 scans, these can be used to evaluate the severity of the soft tissue damage. The first scan is done at two days after initial injury, and absence of uptake has a poor prognosis but may not indicate necrosis. The second scan is done at five days after initial injury. And on the second scan, if there is a normal blood-slash-bone pool, you will treat expectantly. If there is diminished blood-slash-bone pool, you will treat this with observation with potential early debridement. And if there is absent blood-slash-bone pool, then you will resort to early debridement or amputation. Now let's briefly talk about the treatment for hypothermia. First, you will protect the patient from further exposure to freezing temperatures. Then you can administer a rewarming phase only after confirmation that the patient can be maintained in a constant warm environment. Make sure to avoid freeze-thaw cycles. External surface rewarming can be used for mild hypothermia. A passive form of external surface rewarming is dry clothes and a warm room. As far as active external surface rewarming, the disadvantage is too rapid vasodilation leads to metabolic waste rushing to the core, leading to a paradoxical drop in core temperature, otherwise known as an afterdrop, that can worsen arrhythmia. Heat lamps, radiant heaters, heating blanket, and immersion in warm water with cardiac monitoring are all forms of active external surface rewarming. Internal core rewarming can be used for moderate and severe hypothermia. This includes warmed oxygen and warmed IV fluid, body cavity lavage, which is invasive, cardiac bypass, which requires systemic heparinization, and continuous arteriovenous rewarming. This involves blood from the femoral arterial catheter into the fluid heat exchanger. This returns to the body through a subclavian venous catheter and achieves 1 degree Celsius for every 15 minutes. Finally, make sure to avoid alcohol-slash-sedatives as this dulls the shivering response and further lowers the core body temperature. Moving on to the treatment for frostbite, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes prevention, protecting the limb from mechanical trauma, initial resuscitation with warm IV fluids, tetanus prophylaxis, NSAIDs, silver sulfadiazine ointment or topical antibiotics to open wounds and rapid rewarming, IV antibiotics, and rehabilitation. As far as prevention, footwear thermal insulation is the most important factor for protection against cold-induced injury. As far as protecting the limb from mechanical trauma, for example walking and rubbing, you can pad slash splint and or wrap with a blanket for transportation. Again, initial resuscitation should be done with warm IV fluids, tetanus prophylaxis, NSAIDs, sulfur sulfadiazine ointment, or topical antibiotics to open wounds and rapid rewarming. This is indicated for superficial frostbite. These patients can be subjected to a water bath 40 to 42 degrees Celsius with a mild antibacterial agent for 30 minutes. This option is successful when the skin becomes pliable and red-purple. Again, make sure to avoid repetitive freeze-thaw cycles. In the initial resuscitation period, you can use IV analgesia slash conscious sedation. Finally, wound care should be done with topical aloe vera and extremity elevation as well as splinting. IV antibiotics can be used if the patient is secondarily infected, and as far as rehabilitation, this involves whirlpool hydrotherapy as well as PT and OT for preservation of joint motion. Some adjunctive non-operative measures include low molecular weight dextran, 
anticoagulants, and tissue plasminogen activator. Keep in mind that intravenous TPA within 24 hours reduces the rate of digital amputations. The indications for intravenous TPA is when there is no blood flow on bone scan or in the setting of a second or third degree frostbite, not in the case of a superficial frostbite. General contraindications to intravenous TPA include alcoholic patients as there is a risk of bleeding from concomitant head injuries, active internal bleeding, intracranial hemorrhage slash surgery within the past three months, concurrent trauma, major surgery within the previous 14 days, known aneurysm or vascular malformation, known bleeding diathesis, pregnancy, and labile hypertension. Cold-related contraindications to intravenous TPA includes greater than 24 hours of cold exposure, warm ischemia times of greater than 6 hours, and multiple freeze-thaw cycles. Finally, another adjunctive treatment for frostbite includes hyperbaric oxygen, however this has anecdotal evidence. Operative options for frostbite include immediate surgical escherotomy, fasciotomy, debridement of clear blisters and apply aloe vera, drain-slash-aspirate hemorrhagic blisters, late debridement-slash-amputation for necrosis, and surgical sympathectomy. Immediate surgical escherotomy is done when there's a circumferentially constrictive lesion of the digit. A fasciotomy is, of course, done for compartment syndrome. Debridement of clear blisters and application of aloe vera reduces high levels of prostaglandin F2 and thromboxane B2. Drainage-slash-aspiration of hemorrhagic blisters, which represent a deep injury, should be done, but leave the blisters intact. This procedure prevents desiccation of the underlying dermis. With respect to late debridement-slash-amputation for necrosis, remember the adage, frostbite in January, amputate in July. So basically, late debridement-slash-amputation for necrosis is done after demarcation occurs at 1-3 to three months. Finally, surgical sympathectomy reduces duration of pain and time to demarcation of tissue. Keep in mind that surgical sympathectomy does not reduce the extent of necrosis. Finally, just some complications to mention. There are different complications associated with adults and children. Complications in adults include persistent pain, which occurs in 50% of patients, and it's intolerable in 15% of cases. Other complications include cold intolerance, vasospastic disease such as Raynaud's phenomenon, cold sensitivity, persistent color changes, and hyperhidrosis, and the treatment for this can be calcium channel blockers, vasodilators, beta blockers, and surgical sympathectomy. This is indicated for late and persistent vasospastic disease. Neuropathy is another potential complication that is cold-slash-heat hypersensitivity, hyperesthesia, and or paresthesia, and this manifests with decreased motor-slash-sensory nerve conduction velocities, and treatment includes decompression, for example, a carpal tunnel release. Musculoskeletal complications in adults include osteopenia, specifically subchondral bone loss from frostbite arthropathy, joint contractures, especially in the DIP joint greater than the PIP joint of the hands and the feet, and treatment of this osteopenia secondary to frostbite in adults can be joint arthroplasty and or resection arthroplasty. Complications in children include premature growth plate closure and joint laxity, angular deformities, short digits, excess skin, and degenerative joint changes. Premature growth plate closure can occur one to two years after exposure and is secondary to chondrocytic injury. Joint laxity, angular deformities, short digits, excess skin, and degenerative joint changes is seen after age 10 in patients with prior frostbite injuries. Treatment includes physial arrest, osteotomy, and arthrodesis. 
Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 40-year-old homeless man comes to the emergency room after his tent got blown away by the wind. He has pain and discoloration in his hands. The weather is negative 15 degrees Celsius with a wind speed of 25 kilometers per hour or 15.5 miles per hour. When is the most appropriate time to perform surgical debridement slash amputation? And the choices are one, after immersion in a 50 degrees Celsius water bath for 30 minutes, followed by reevaluation after six hours. Two, after immersion in a 42 degrees Celsius water bath for 30 minutes, followed by reevaluation after 24 hours. Three, after demarcation, which may take one to three days. Four, after demarcation, which may take one to three weeks. And five, after demarcation, which may take one to three months. The correct answer to this question is five after demarcation, which may take one to three months. Demarcation takes one to three months. Surgical intervention should occur after that time period. To quickly review, frostbite occurs more commonly in males in a 10 to 1 ratio in the 30 to 50 year old age group. Homeless people and outdoor workers are most at risk. About 20% of injuries involve the upper limb, 47% involve the lower limb, 30% involve both upper and lower limbs and 3% involve the head and face. The most important host risk is alcohol abuse. The risk of frostbite is low when air temperatures are above 14 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 10 degrees Celsius, regardless of wind velocity, but is high at temperatures below negative 13 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 25 degrees Celsius, even when there is little or no wind. Moving on to the next question, what is the most important measure to take to reduce the risk of frostbite of the toes while hiking in extreme temperatures? And the choices are one, stop often for recovery breaks, two, drink enough warm liquids, three, reduce thermal heat loss from shoes, four, use triple socks, and five, adequately carb load before the start. The correct answer to this question is three, reduce thermal heat loss from shoes. So several studies showed the most reliable method to reduce the risk of cold exposure injury is to reduce thermal heat loss. This can be done with a combination of protective socks and shoes and reducing moisture in the shoes. Moving on to the next question. A 22-year-old college student presents with significant finger pain after coming into contact with liquid nitrogen in this chemistry lab. The clinical presentation is consistent with a hemorrhagic blister due to acute frostbite injury. What is the most appropriate next step in treatment? And the choices are one, blister debridement and hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Two, drainage of the blister with the overlying skin left intact. Three, full thickness blister and skin debridement with local flap coverage. Four, MRI scan of the digit to assess degree of soft tissue damage. And five, wet to dry, twice daily dressing changes to the digit. The correct answer to this question is two, drainage of the blister with the overlying skin left intact. So the clinical presentation is consistent with the hemorrhagic blister due to acute frostbite injury. Of the options presented, the most appropriate treatment is drainage of the blister with the overlying skin left intact. Hemorrhagic blisters represent deeper injuries and debriding them could lead to desiccation of the underlying dermis. Alternatively, intact blisters can be left in place and wrapped in dry gauze dressings until they resolve. And moving on to the final question. 
Clinical evaluation of a patient who was stranded in a sub-zero region for several days shows gangrenous tissue of the toes. However, the skin just proximal to the gangrenous tissue appears somewhat hyperemic and is clearly viable. The patient has no clinical or observed signs of sepsis. The patient is otherwise healthy and fit and takes no medication. He reports burning pain and tingling in both feet. What is the best treatment? And the choices are 1. Moist dressings and continued observation. 2. Debridement of the necrotic tissue. 3. Amputation at the metatarsophalangeal level with open wound management. 4. Closed forefoot amputation. And 5. Guillotine transtibial amputation. The correct answer to this question is 1. Moist dressings and continued observation. So the patient has no clinical or observed signs of sepsis. The skin just proximal to the gangrenous tissue appears somewhat hyperemic and is clearly viable. These wounds should be managed much like burn wounds. Moist dressings should be used until the tissue clearly demarcates. Much of the insult may simply be superficial and only require late debridement. That's all for this review about frostbite. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website while going through the topic. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.